0: He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the only begotten name of the only begotten son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can be here today to study your word that your word addresses every issue in life for us. It gives us the framework for understanding the world around us. It gives us the framework for understanding who you are and what you have done for us. And it is on the basis of your word that we learn how to think and we learn how we should live. And, Father, as we study your word, it is a tremendous comfort to us as we face the realities of life on the basis of the eternal principles that we find in your word. Now, Father, as we study these things today, may we be uh, focused that we can put our attention upon your word, that God the Holy Spirit would make clear to each one of us the ways in which we need to apply the principles that we discover here and that uh, we would be able to implement these in the days to come in a way that glorifies and honors you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Kings chapter 19. This is a very interesting Chapter and episode in the life of Elijah. Because when we normally think of Elijah, the episode that comes to most people's mind is the episode that we have covered in the last chapter, the confrontation with the priests of Baal and the Asherah on Mount Carmel. However, what immediately follows that is something we don't really expect. This is one of those situations and episodes in the life of a prophet in the scriptures that I think gives credence to the Bible as being a unique, uh, a unique book that uh, substantiates the fact that it is a revelation from God and not something that has been just cobbled together by various uh, religious people. Because we see in the Scriptures, whether we're talking about Abraham or Noah, whether we're talking about uh, David or uh, Solomon or Elijah or even the Apostle Paul, we see that the these great believers, these great men who are used by God, not only have tremendous spiritual victories, but they have uh, tremendous spiritual failures. And their flaws are the same flaws that we have. We all have sin natures. We all have failures uh, spiritually, and sometimes our failures are uh, fairly large. And in the scriptures, these are recorded for us so that we see these great men of God, that they are just like we are. This is why the writer of James says that, reminds us that Elijah was a man of like nature. He's just like us. The only thing that made him special was that at key times he was completely dependent upon God and obedient to his word, and so God was able to use him in just uh, magnificent ways. But just like us, Elijah took his attention off of God, and when he did, there was tremendous failure. And in those failures in our life, we often learn more than we do in those times of spiritual success and spiritual victory. What we see when we come to 1 Kings 19 is that the prophet that is so triumphant and victorious in the 18th chapter becomes, within just two short verses, he becomes disillusioned, downcast, depressed, and despairing of his whole life and so we come to this situation and we should address a couple of questions what are the dynamics of despair what goes on in our mind and our thinking that takes us from a position when everything is wonderful and moving forward to five seconds later we're wallowing in self-pity and throwing our own pity party Uh, How does that happen? And furthermore, when that happens, what is God's solution? What are the divine uh, problem-solving devices that we use in order to recover? In other words, what do you do when all of a sudden you find that you are uh, down and discouraged and you really don't think the battle is worth uh, fighting anymore? These are some of the questions that uh, we can answer as we look at what happens with Elijah in uh, 1 Kings 19. Now, in 1 Kings 17 and 18, we see Elijah at the top of his game. We don't know what his life was like before he bursts on the scene in chapter uh, 17, verse 1, but from the very beginning, he has the spiritual courage to confront those who are standing against God in the northern kingdom of Israel. He goes straight into the presence of the king, and he is not cowed, he's not fearful, he's not anxious. He just boldly announces that God is about to bring discipline upon the northern kingdom of Israel, and there will not be rain again until he, Elijah, says so. And then just as quickly as he appeared on the scene, he disappeared. And we saw what went on in his life during the three and a half years as God takes him through a training procedure, similar to the training procedure that he does for all of us. He takes us through various circumstances and situations in life where we are forced to trust him. And in trusting him and in enduring in those circumstances, spiritual growth and maturity takes place and our confidence in God uh, build. And this happened as we see Elijah facing uh, his ongoing daily sustenance while he is uh, by the brook Carrot during the first half of chapter 17. Then as the water dried up and the food disappeared, then God moves him on to the uh, widow in Zarephath. And there every day, there is a fresh supply of oil and a fresh supply of flour. And God daily provides, and then that culminated with the episode with the death of the widow's son, and Elijah prayed to God that he would restore life. And so in each of these situations, God is not only, you know, God's just the original multitasker. He is not only preparing Elijah for what's going to happen on Mount Carmel, but in each of these miracles and each of these provisions god is specifically dealing with the uh, confrontational points that uh, that that elijah is going to face in dealing with baal and the theology of baalism and the whole false belief system that has so infected and corrupted the northern kingdom of israel for in each of these miracles there's a counterpoint counterpoint to what the claim was that Baal could do. And all of this culminates, of course, in the great confrontation that occurred on Mount uh, Carmel. And at the end of that event, we see that the priests of Baal and the Asherah are defeated. The forces of evil and tyranny seem to be on the ropes. Ahab is present through the whole situation. I didn't bring it out, but when uh, Elijah commands that the priests of Baal and the Asherah are taken down uh, are taken and executed Ahab is obviously present and Ahab obviously concurs he does not resist he does not contradict Elijah Ahab himself has been right there front row box seat watching God uh, just vaporize the altar that Elijah has built. And this must have had a remarkable, made a remarkable impression upon Ahab. He has seen a a profound empirical evidence of the reality of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of the inadequacy and the failure of the false religious system that he has promoted as he has been influenced by his Uh, domineering wife Jezebel and we could almost see Ahab teetering on the verge of perhaps uh, turning to Yahweh and then uh, he has been so impressed with all of this so he just goes along with Ahab there's no I mean he goes along with Elijah there's no longer uh, any resistance uh, whatsoever, and then Elijah will command him in verse 44 to uh, prepare his chariot and to take off for Samaria, or, or excuse me, for Jezreel, before the rain begins, so he can get out of there before the floodwaters come and the area becomes uh, inundated and his chariot becomes mired, uh, mired in the mud. And so Ahab took off; he had a head start back to Jezreel. And then we read in verse 46, the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah. So there's a supernatural enablement. Uh, this this run uh, precedes the run at marathon by several centuries, and it's a little bit shorter. It's about 15, 18 miles, and Elijah takes off, and he catches up with, uh, with Ahab's chariot and runs ahead of him to Jezreel. Now, what was going on in their minds? I think it's, well, it's helpful for us to think about the dynamics of their, their, their mindset. Ahab is headed back to Jezebel. So he's thinking, what in the world is he going to tell her? He knows how she hates she hates Elijah more than anything the the bitterness in her soul the anger in her soul the dedication that she has to uh, Baalism is at the highest highest level and she has not been there to witness this display of God's power on Mount Carmel so he has to convince her of that, and he has to relay to her that all of her uh, favorite priests of the Asherah and of Baal have been executed by her her enemy Elijah, and he knows that um, the original principle in the Hebrew that hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Well, he knows that he's going to face. All the wrath of hell from Jezebel when she get when he gets home and tells her this because she is going to um, she is not going to take any of this very well. Now what's going on in Elijah's mind? Elijah had just seen this tremendous display of God. There have been thousands of Israelites from the Northern Kingdom present on Mount Carmel to witness this, and at the conclusion of this tremendous display. They have said in verse 39, the Lord Yahweh, He is God, Yahweh, He is God, and they have been, uh, they have recognized the power of God, and He has spent the last three and a half years focused on this one event that would come about in all those years that He's sitting in the bench at first at Kareth and then at Zarephath, waiting upon the Lord. Now is the moment of triumph. And what his desire is, what what his heart is focused on, is that this will bring about a tremendous spiritual revival in the northern kingdom. And that is what he expects will transpire as Ahab comes back to um, Comes back to Jezreel, he thinks that he is on the edge of realizing that hope that there will be a tremendous turn in the northern kingdom and that the northern kingdom will no longer be mired in the paganism and the apostasy and the tyranny that it has been experiencing for these past several years, but now there will be a return to worship of God and real freedom. Well, what is going on in the soul of Elijah is the same thing that often goes on in our, own, in our own souls. We often have our hopes and dreams. We often have our uh, expectations of what God is going to do uh, in our lives. And that is exactly what Elijah had. He had an expectation that God would bring about a revival in the northern Kingdom. This is a good thing to hope for. It is not a a wrong goal. It is not an erroneous objective to hope that people in the land will turn back to God, be obedient to him, and then God would bring the nation back to a position of blessing. It is a hope and desire that many believers, most believers in this nation have regarding the circumstances that we face, that somehow there would be a change that the people would uh, turn from being hostile to God to turning to God and that they would implement the principles from Scripture and that our nation would be restored to a position uh, of blessing from God, this is a valid uh, hope and a valid dream. We often have other valid hopes and valid dreams in our lives and in any in the course of all of our lives, um, we often set these goals and objectives. We have legitimate Biblically uh, correct, God honoring goals and objectives in our lives that we, uh, we hope to achieve. We make decisions to pursue a particular career. Or to seek a certain position or a job because we think that in that position or in that job we'll have the resources to do certain things that we would like to do. And perhaps that includes supportive missions or support of the local church or it puts us in a better position as a, as a husband or as a father to take care of our family in a way that we think uh, honors and glorifies the Lord we have objectives in our lives to have a certain kind of marriage to have an excellent marriage one that honors and glorifies God that that in the union of husband and wife that there will be a growing together maturing spiritually so that that union itself becomes a testimony to the grace of God and that that union becomes a sound corporate testimony uh, in the angelic uh, angelic conflict. We have desires as parents that we raise our children to be uh, godly children, to love the Lord, to be positive to doctrine, to be uh, to become solid adult Christians who are positive to God's word. We have uh, objectives that we set for ourselves to become financially secure so that as we approach uh, retirement age that we have the resources that we need in order to continue to live and provide for ourselves during the uh, last years or so of our life. We have objectives that we have to become successful in life so that we can achieve things that come with success that we believe would honor and glorify God. We choose those as Bible-believing Christians, positive to his word, to shape those things because we believe that the, that end goal that we pick is one that will will glorify God. That's what Elijah has done. He has in his mind a set view of what is going to come about as a result of of his ministry to the northern kingdom. And in order to achieve that goal or that objective, we know that as Bible believing Christians, we ha- it's not just choosing the right end, but how we get there. So we know that in order to get there, we have to study the word, we have to grow spiritually, that as husbands, as wives, as parents, we have to fulfill what the scripture teaches in order to be Uh, effective godly parents husbands wives that in the pursuit of careers in pursuit of uh, financial goals we know that there are certain principles that we need to apply and so we not only choose uh, ends or goals or objectives that are valid that are honoring to God but we choose a way to get there that we know also honors God that if we do do it God's way, then the end result is going to be one of, uh, of blessing. We've gone through that, uh, that entire process, and then one day something happens and everything crashes. We lose our life savings, and suddenly those retirement years don't look quite so secure. Our health gets wrecked. Suddenly something is discovered. We have uh, cancer. We have some other disease. And what we thought would be uh, the end of our life is going to be very different from what, what it actually will be. We're married, and our spouse goes negative to doctrine, negative to us. And one day we wake up, and we're alone. We're no longer married. Or we have children that have been raised according to biblical principles, they've been involved in church, they've been homeschooled, they have been uh, taught everything they can be taught about, about Bible doctrine, about worldview, about scripture, they've been experiencing all of these things, and then suddenly they hit 18, 19, 20 years of age, and It's like we don't know them anymore. They become anti-God, anti-Christian. They have just uh, taken a high dive into the shallow pool of paganism, and now they are wallowing in it, and we are their enemy. So what do we do? How do we handle this? And this is a situation that Elijah faced. Everything that he had thought would happen, everything that he had dreamed of for the northern kingdom was not going to happen, and this is what uh, sets sets him up for failure. And you see, the same thing that sets him up for failure is the same thing that sets us up for failure, and that has to do with two things, mental attitude and mental focus. And when we get our eye off of the Lord and onto circumstances, no matter what those circumstances are, whether it's blessing or adversity, Then we can encounter tremendous, uh, a a tremendous failure in our own spiritual life. And we'll learn a lot from that, as we will from Elijah's failure here in chapter, uh, chapter 19. When everything goes wrong, counter to what we expected, when we've done everything to honor and glorify God, we've done everything God's way, and suddenly we lose everything, we begin to question ourselves, we begin to question God, we begin to uh, just uh, swim around in self-absorption and despair and depression, fear, worry, and anxiety often mount, and we just throw ourselves one enormous pity party. And often as a result of that, we begin to blame God. Well, God's plan's not so great. Look at what happened. I, I did all of this. For the Lord, and now I've got to deal with this situation, whatever it might be. And this is exactly what happens uh, to Elijah. We go through all of this. We start blaming ourselves. We blame God. We blame everybody else, and we just want to give up and die. Even so, Lord Jesus, come now. Why doesn't the rapture happen this week? I just pray for it to happen so I don't have to deal with all these things that are going on Uh, In my life. And I think this is something we all face. We do everything right and then everything falls apart. And this is exactly what we see with Elijah. Now, we ought to get a little, one thing we ought to look at is his frame of mind. This is one aspect of the spiritual life that is brought out in this passage that is not brought out very much. We often think of things just exclusively within sort of a mental attitude, mental focus. Doctrinal uh, position, but uh, the reality is for most of us, we also have certain physical factors that impinge upon our mental attitude. factors related to rest, factors related to health, nutrition, uh, factors related to uh, just the, the the stress that comes our way because we're expected to work, maybe. 12 hours a day, we come home, we still have work to do, we get to bed about 11 o'clock at night, and we get up at 5 in the morning, and it piles up on us, and we become physically exhausted. Well, that's one of the factors we see here with Elijah. Think of what is going on with him physically. He has had this long, long day. He has been the focal point of attention, he has been the focal point of opposition, and he has... Uh, weathered all of that quite magnificently. At the end of the day, and we know it was at the end of the day because his offering came at the time of the evening offering, so we know this is late in the afternoon and when, his, uh, when his sacrifice was uh, burned up by the Lord. And following that, there is the execution of these 700 prophets. And after that, then there is the time of prayer where he is praying through seven times, sending his servant up and down to the top of Mount Carmel. All of this takes time. So another hour or so, or maybe two hours goes by, so it is getting late in the day. And then we have this marathon, 15-mile run to Jezreel. And that would have taken uh, another hour Let's say by chariot. Maybe he, maybe uh, Ahab made it in an hour. Maybe he made it. Maybe Ahab or uh, excuse me, Elijah could have run it in less time. But nevertheless, he would have been physically exhausted at the end of the day. And that physical reality often affects us in terms of our own mental attitude. We all know that when we are tired, when we are physically weary. When we have just been facing one thing after another, then we are much more vulnerable to spiritual failure than when we are alert and awake and refreshed, and that is part of the dynamic that is going on uh, with Elijah. And so we see that Elijah has been engaged in the heart of spiritual warfare for all of this day, and that can be... Uh, wearying, we have to keep our focus on the Lord. Ephesians 6:10 and following is a great passage in the New Testament dealing with spiritual warfare. There, the Apostle Paul writes, "Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might." See, Elijah has understood that his fight must be in the might of God, in the power of God, not in his power, and he has rested and trusted in the Lord. And he understands, as well as any of us, that what the Apostle Paul state, states in Ephesians 6.12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The battle is not against human beings, ultimately. It is not against... Uh, people who are in places of power where you work, it's not against uh, uh, people who are in positions of power in the government, it's not against pe- uh, people who are in positions of power in education, it is ultimately a spiritual battle, the causation of this is lies behind the physical in the realm of the angelic conflict, in the realm of Satan and in the realm of demons. That's why our weapons are not physical weapons. That's why the issue isn't rationalism or empiricism. We just had this phenomenal display, this empirical display of God's power on Mount Carmel. And Ahab has seen it, and Elijah has seen it, and just within a very short time three verses in the text probably no more than a couple of hours in reality Elijah goes from being this tremendous dependent man of God to a despondent despairing uh believer who just wants to give up and let God take him home and he is running in fear for his life and he has gone he has made a 180 degree turn in his spiritual life because he took the focus off of God. We have to remember that it is ultimately a spiritual conflict and a spiritual issue, and it is not dependent upon empiricism or or rationalism. So Elijah is going to go into another test. We have to think about it this way. When we look at Scripture like this and we see somebody goes through this, we have to think categorically about what is going on so we can Uh, learn the lessons that are there. James tells us that we're to count it all joy when we fall into various trials because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance. Now, what happens with Elijah is he's endured to a point, but now he's going to grow weary and he's going to fail. He hits this one test. He said test after test after test, and now he's going to fail, uh, just like we do. So we have to learn from that, and we have to apply that to our own our own failures. We have to be reminded that there are promises, such as First uh, Corinthians ten thirteen, that there is no uh, testing taken us, but such as is common to man. All the categories of testing we go through are in, in categories of testing that are common to everyone else. The Lord Jesus Christ went through those same categories of testing, yet without sin. And God always make, makes a way to escape, according to 1 Corinthians 10.13, which doesn't mean to get out from under, out from under the pressure, out from under the circumstances, but to stay there. That's, that's that, that Greek word for endurance is hupomone, which means to remain under. Not So we, we get this misunderstanding there when it says that, that God's going to provide a, a way to escape, Because the next phrase says, that you may endure it. See, God provides a way so that you can stay in the test and in the trial and in the adversity and yet still have uh, victory, still grow and advance spiritually by staying there. And that's where we learn the principle of endurance. The Lord Jesus Christ understood this. When he went to the cross, he had to face the fact that he was going to receive the judicial imputation of all of our sins. He would have to endure that without failure, without giving up, without uh, getting down off of the cross. He had to endure the fact that he who knew no sin would be made sin for us. And the key to this the key to handling any task, any trial, whatever it is, is humility. And what happened to Elijah is the same thing that happens to us. We get arrogant. It just seeps in. And we start uh, becoming overconfident, and we start thinking that somehow we really are in control and we will get what we thought we would get. And see, the, the key that's demonstrated by the Lord on the cross is... Uh, expressed by Paul in Philippians 2.8, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Here's Jesus Christ. He had every goal and objective that he had in his life was right. He knew no sin. So he didn't have wrong goals or objectives. He didn't have a wrong mental attitude. He never failed. Every End or every means that he chose to get to that goal was always right. Everything he said was right. He didn't do anything wrong. And what happened? Everybody turned against him. Everyone, even his disciples, des- deserted him at the end. And he, the one who was who knew no sin, never did anything wrong, ne- never did anything to deserve the punishment, the death that he got, was hung on a cross. Now, if that happened to the Lord Jesus Christ, by doing everything right, it certainly looked like it came crashing down, we can really expect the same kind of things to happen in our lives because we live in the devil's world. And so we often become our own worst enemies by cre- creating a uh, a world of unrealistic expectations, and we forget that God is in control and we need to be completely devoted to him. Just because we do everything the right way doesn't mean it's going to end up the way that we think it will. So all that by way of introduction, we get into 1 Kings 19.1, and we see Ahab arriving at his summer palace there in Jezreel, and we can just imagine that he must have faced Jezebel with, uh, at the very least, mixed emotions. Uh, Fear, anxiety, what is she going to say? Hope that somehow he might uh, might convince her. And he tells her everything that Elijah had done. Uh, Perhaps he was even trying to convince her that uh, Elijah was right, that look at what God did. I'm not trying to say Ahab was a believer. We see later on that he does seem to, he has a, when, when we get into a couple of chapters from now, that that um, he understands that there are prophets who speak the truth and that he's really surrounded by a bunch of sycophants. And so there's a, a an interesting uh, thing going on inside of his soul because he's an unbeliever that just has a lot of confusion, and that's what we deal with when we deal with unbelievers. So he, he comes in, and he, he tells Jezebel everything that Elijah had done and how he had executed all of her little favorites. Uh, and Jezebel then responds immediately by sending a messenger to Elijah. And she says, so let the gods do to me, and more also, this is a typical form of an oath that would be taken uh, in the ancient world, may God do to me, and even more so, if I don't do this to you later. Uh, and so she phrases it that way, and her what she is swearing is an oath of revenge, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time, so what is she threatening? She's threatening that to, that she is going to catch Elijah and she's going to execute him. And Elijah has less than 24 hours to live. He is about to die. Now there's a real irony here because he's going to run away, and when he dies into the pool of self pity, what does he say? Lord, take my life. Well, wait a minute. Why didn't you just stay? Why don't you stay back there in Jezreel? Jezebel would have taken your life. See, this is what happens when we get into, when we get into carnality and quit trusting God. We become so irrational and illogical. We just, everything just turns uh, upside, down, uh, upside down in our soul. So he gets worried that Jezebel is sending out the execution squad, the hit team, to get him. And rather than trusting God, and let me tell you something, You're not any better, and I'm not any better than Elijah. We have moments when we have tremendous spiritual victory. We trust God. We claim those promises, and we're just, we have everything right on the mark. And two seconds later, you'd think we never learned a lick of Bible doctrine, that we never heard any truth, and we're as out of fellowship and as pagan as Anybody we can, we can think of in our society. And it can happen just like that because we let the circumstances suddenly dominate our focus and take our eyes off of the Lord and put our eyes on circumstance. And that is exactly what happens with uh, Elijah. Verse 3, when he saw that, when he heard that the hit team was after him, he prayed to God to bring fire down upon them, and he relaxed and trusted God to protect him. Right? No. You wouldn't have done it any different either. When he saw that, he arose and he ran for his life. He has gone from focus on God to focus on circumstances, from confidence and a relaxed mental attitude to fear, worry, anxiety, despair, and depression in a heartbeat in a moment and he is running for his life and he goes to Beersheba which belongs to Judah and left his servant there so he does have an associate his servant with him to a point and then he leaves him in Beersheba now the description that you have in the bible to to describe the parameters of the promised land from the north to the south is from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south so here is a uh, is a map uh of where, of the location that we're talking about. Up north, I have in the uh circle in the north the, the uh Jezreel Valley, uh Mount Carmel, uh Megiddo, uh Beit at the lower lower end and, and uh Jezreel was somewhere in the center of that of that valley. So he's gonna head south approximately a hundred miles. So this is a long journey. He's gonna take probably maybe four days, five days to make it. If he's really running in fear for his life, he'll make it a, maybe a little uh, quicker. But he heads to Beersheba, and then he drops off his his servant there. Now, Beersheba is out in the middle of the desert, so I thought I'd give you a couple of pictures from uh, the tell at uh, Beersheba in uh, the southern part of, of Israel. That's what the remains look like today. And if you look at that, it's a pretty barren desert uh, landscape it is dry and dusty and the green crops you see in the distance are just due to the uh, tremendous uh, energy uh, and industry of the Israelis as they are bringing bringing uh, water into the desert and producing uh, num- numerous crops there so he goes to Beersheba drops off his servant and then in verse 4 he says but he himself goes a day's journey into the wilderness now we think of wilderness because we're Americans and you grew up on stories of Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. You think of a forested wilderness. But the wilderness there is a barren desert. I mean a barren, barren, dry, dry desert as you head out. There's just not very much there. Uh, there are various wadis, otherwise known as an intermittent stream, that has water in it only during the uh, the rainy season. And so after he gets about a day's journey south, notice he's getting as far away from Jezebel and her hit team as he possibly can get. He's going to a good place. He's out there in the desert. You can see anybody else coming from miles around, and hopefully if somebody is chasing you, you can spot them and you can uh, evade them. And But he is now exhausted from, he was exhausted when he started the trip, and now after running from one end of the country to the other, he is truly exhausted, and he finally just wipes out. And in verse 5 we read, He lay under a broom tree. Now this is what a broom tree looks like. It's not much grows out in the desert, but it's one of the few places that you can find where there's anything near shade. And out in that part of the country, if the weather is anything like it is today, temperature can hit 115, 120 um, in the shade. So you're trying to find any shade you can because out in the sun, it is pretty miserable. And suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Now, what's happened? Well, we know that he failed. Otherwise, that's known as sin. He fails to trust God. He is relying on his own strength and his own resources. He is now out of fellowship trying to handle the circumstances of life uh, on the basis of his own sin nature. Human human um, stress management. You know, God gives us problem-solving devices, but the, all the world can give us is a way to sort of manage the stress, just sort of massage it a little bit, move it around, but we can't get rid of it. When we follow the word, we can completely relax and rest in God's provision. So he's been trying to solve everything on his own. Now, what is God doing? See, this is Grace. For every single one of us, this doesn't change. He is out of fellowship. He's not trusting God. He is not where God would have ideally wanted him to be. But he is running away. And what does God do? Well, Elijah, you fail. Let me just drop kick you a little further south. Is so that what happens? No. God meets us where we are. As I pointed out earlier, uh, in reading Psalm 103. Psalm 103, 13 and 14 states, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. See, God knows our limitations. He knows our failures. And even when we're out of fellowship, that doesn't mean that God removes himself from any involvement in our life. God is going to, out of grace, provide refreshment and nourishment for Elijah. He is going to send an angel to him. Now, when he was living for that year or year and a half or so in the brook Kareth, when he's being fed by the ravens, not by an angel, and he's got that the water drying up, there's no angel there. When he then left and went to Zarephath with the widow, there's no angel there. But notice God's remarkable grace here. He sends an angel. He deals with even uh, with, with a servant in failure with remarkable uh, compassion and mercy, and he sends an angel. And the angel comes to him and says, Arise and eat. And then in uh, verse 6 we read, Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals. The angel started a little fire there. And a jar of water brought something physical, brought water there uh, in a jar. So he ate and drank, and he lay down again. See, one of the things that has to happen, even in the midst of going through a spiritual failure, is we have to take care of ourselves physically. Physically. Now, normally we're so focused on claiming promises, confession of sins, these other things, we forget there are other factors that, that enter in. When we are exhausted, we have to, we have to get rested that that has an impact on our frame of mind, on our thinking. And so God is going to deal with Elijah at both a spiritual level and dealing with him at a physical level. He provides food and water and an opportunity for Elijah to rest. And he's going to sleep. This is only the beginning. This goes on for another 40-plus days, for another six weeks. And then when we come to the end of this section, which we will next time, uh, we come to the end of the section, we're going to see that Elijah still, after 40 days and 40 nights in the desert where he has wrestled with uh, his own failure, wrestled with the spiritual principles, he's still wallowing in self-pity, and he still wants God to just take him home. This is a complex situation, and, and I, the reason I'm pointing this out is because too often when I teach or others teach basic principles of recovery in the Christian life, it sounds as if all you need to do is just turn on a dime and get back in fellowship, and you can just uh, go uh, ripping and tearing forward in in spiritual growth. But that's not always the case. Here is a great believer, a great prophet of God, and he has all of this empirical data. God is uh, providing for him in, susten- in grace, he's providing sustenance and rest for him. This is going to go on for six weeks. When he comes out the other end of the six weeks, he's still mired in self-pity and failure. He is just, he, he, he can't get quite to that point of recovery. We'll see how that happens next time when we... Um, uh, come to the end of the, of the episode. First Kings 19.7, we're told the angel of the Lord came back a second time. God's continuing grace, even when we're out of fellowship, God continues to move us along and deal with us in grace. He is not in a hurry to lower the boom and discipline us in a harsh way. The angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you, God takes care of his physical nourishment that 's the verse I always quote there from second peter one three that that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Those are really two categories: life is physical life, physical needs. the useia there translated godliness refers to our uh, reverent obedience to God, our spiritual life so it 's really talking about two things: our physical life, our spiritual life god isn 't ignoring. Uh, the physical life and just focusing on on the spiritual. He's going to take care of both, and he is going to provide for us everything we need in order to uh, fulfill uh, our spiritual uh, destiny and his will for our lives. So Elijah is told to rise and eat because the uh, journey is too great for you. Now, he's going to go another 100 miles. It's not any further than that from the Negev in uh, Israel down to uh, somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, wherever Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb was located. I don't know exactly where it was located, but I'll tell you this, it wasn't located anywhere near the traditional site at the lower tip of uh, of the Sinai Peninsula. I'll talk a little bit about that next time and, and some of the issues related to that location. But even if it were located at the traditional site, which is further than any of the other sites that are, that are suggested, he could, would still have reached it within four or five days. But he is going to take forty days uh, wandering around in the desert, just like the Israelites did when they came out of when they came out of Egypt. certainly doesn't take forty years to cross uh, the Sinai Peninsula. You can walk across it in a couple of weeks. So there's something else going on here. And in verse eight, we're told that he arose and drank, and he went in the strength of that food, forty days. And 40 nights. That was some really good protein bars. <laughs> God really packs the nutrients in there. For 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, here's just a map to show you the Sinai Peninsula, and the traditional site is down there in the lower tip. But, um, most scholars who really take the text seriously think it's either up towards the middle part or up a little bit to the uh, right of center, but um, that's another issue. So he goes out for 40 days and 40 nights. This is reminiscent of the 40 years that the Israelites had wandered around in the wilderness, also being tested by God, and God is testing Uh, Elijah, while he is out there for these 40 days and 40 nights, about six weeks he's out uh, on his way to ultimately meeting with God at, at Mount Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai. It is there that he is going to come to grips with God's plan for his life and how he fit within God's plan for Israel. God's going to enlighten him. Uh, to a few things, which is going to show that God's not through with him, that even though he has failed miserabl- miserably, God still has a plan for his whole life, even though, and the same thing is true for us, that even though we fail miserably at times, God still has a plan for our life, and it just emphasizes God's grace. And all of this is a picture of the lesson that Elijah should have learned before this, because it's also a picture of what God is doing in the life of the nation Israel. And so we'll come back to that next time and we will pull together the principles we need when we are pursuing things that we know God wants us to pursue in a way that God wants us to pursue it. And all of a sudden everything comes crashing down around us and we need to know how to keep our focus on God and not on the circumstances. Let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be encouraged by the fact that you are mindful of our weaknesses, you know that, that our frame is of dust, and that you deal with us in grace and you extend your grace above and beyond anything that we could imagine. Grace is the basis for our salvation, and we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would make this both sure and certain. This is your opportunity to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is the eternal Son of God who came to earth, took on humanity in order to go to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He completely paid that penalty so that there's nothing left over, nothing left undone, nothing in addition that needs to be accomplished. So all that is required of us is that we accept that gift, that death uh, as a gift on our behalf, that we trust in him, believe that he died for us. And if we trust in him, then we have eternal life, which can never be taken away would never be taken from us. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with the principles that we've learned this morning and that we we would be encouraged that even in the midst of failure, we can recover, we can uh, confess our sins, we can get back in fellowship, we can go forward, and that you do have a plan for our lives and that you will always deal with us in grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.